This podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at cyphercast.net and follow us on Twitter at cyphercast.net. Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Dave. And we will be your guides along the path of suns. Today we sing two spells. With a distant light pierces the mist, we discuss the lessons one can draw from the TV show Legion for running a surreal RPG session. And then with the Vizlai Tourist Bureau, we discuss the recently announced Gen Con sessions for Invisible Sun. Join us on the path of suns and we may uncover a secret or two. With a distant light pierces the mist, we discuss potential inspirations for our Invisible Sun games coming from other media. In this segment, we discuss the currently running Legion television show from the FX network. We will avoid spoilers to the extent possible, but some might sneak out, so be warned. Spoilers? (laughs) We will avoid certainly plot-based spoilers, um, but if you are super sensitive to spoilers, um, you might want to skip ahead a little bit. But uh, I think everything will be okay. Cool. Uh, <laughs> I haven't watched any of season two, but I did see all of season one. Yeah, I've only seen the first two episodes of season two. I'm a couple episodes behind, uh, but I, the discussion's going to be at a pretty broad level. So I don't. I'm not worried about spoilers, nor am I worried that the most recent two episodes are going to contradict what I've said about what lessons we can learn and techniques we can draw from for our RPGs. So I think we're going to be in good shape. Oh, um, you might recall that we we talked a little bit about Legion a long time ago, back in episode 21. We briefly mentioned it, and here we're going to dive in a little bit deeper. Right. That was that was like almost a year ago. Uh, we mentioned it as part of a almost uh, a, a renaissance or at least a uh, proliferation of surreal television shows that have been popular over the past couple of years. Uh, and so we, we didn't have time to talk about Legion in detail. So this would seem like a good time with the recent uh, second season of Legion to, to revisit the show and talk about what to draw uh, from it as inspiration. Cool. All right. So what's up with Legion? <laughs> so Legion is based on an X-Men character from the Marvel comic books called, unsurprisingly, Legion. He originally appeared in the New Mutants title relatively early in its runs. This would have been in the mid-1980s. The TV show is currently in its second season, but it is only very loosely based on the comic book source. Yeah, he doesn't have the cool hair from the comics. Yeah, uh, for those who've seen the original comics in which he appeared, this was during the run where New Mutants was written by Chris Claremont and illustrated by uh, Bill Sanchez. And Sanchez is famous for having well surreal, exaggerated, and kind of crazy art. So he's famous for his Demon Bear arc, uh, as well as this Legion arc in particular. And it has a lot of the surreal elements we've talked about in visual representation with uh, exaggeration uh, and kind of non-representational uh, elements to uh, help evoke emotion through visual, visual imagery, uh, rather than merely representing uh, the literal truth or um, a, you know, a, a, an imagined realistic physical world. Yeah. I think I was introduced to Legion in the Muir Island saga. 
And I don't remember who did the art for that. I keep getting that confused with like X Factor when it was Peter David and Jay Lee doing the the work on that. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure yeah. if it was actually Jay Lee who was doing it. Yeah, I don't remember who did the art in the Muir Island saga. That was re- relatively close to the end of the Claremont run. Yeah, um, it was probably Andy Kubert because I remember the art being kind of gross and messy. <laughs> Something like that, but it certainly wasn't Sanchez. No. Um, so let, let's talk about some of the elements that are retained uh, in the show uh, from the comic book. But I remember most of the comic book source material is left behind. Uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, like the namesake in the comic book, the uh, the main character is David Heller. And uh, he is the character that in the comic book is called Legion. Uh, I'm not sure they've ever actually called him this in, in the television show itself. Um, so it's just a really a reference to the comic book, even though it's uh, in some ways a more grounded story for television. And so you don't have as many like code names uh, and trappings of a superhero story, even if it has those, those origins. Um, in the comic book was Legion in reference to the, there's a note that you have coming up here pretty soon, which is multiple personality disorder. Was he, did he have that in the comics as well? Yes. So in okay. the um, in the television show and the comic books, David has a variety of rather severe mental health issues. Uh, these are grossly sensationalized to include what you might call multiple personality disorder. Now, my understanding from psych uh, from psychiatry is that multiple personality disorders' very existence as a condition is controversial uh, among audiences that know a lot more about mental illness than I do. So understand that the representation of multiple personality disorder in the comic book and in the television show is sensationalized for sort of surreal artistic representation um, and does not necessarily represent a real mental disorder uh, or try to speak to the reality of it. That Mm -hmm. being said, um, the show is, I think, interesting and valuable socially in part because it directly addresses mental health issues that are very rarely addressed in television uh, or in comic books for that matter, but we're talking about uh, in television. So I think that there's actually some good to be served, even with a sensationalized account of someone with multiple personalities um, and, or, um, you know, these sorts of, of, of mental health issues just to raise awareness of the consequences uh, of mental health and, and the presence of mental health issues in our society, even though you don't see it very often if you're watching mostly sitcoms and um, the only mental health disorders you see on dramas is on crime shows where it's some person doing some bad things hmm. yeah, in the comic did. books <laughs> yeah, in the comic books uh, Heller has multiple personalities with each personality having different powers and so his he has one personality that has uh, the has telepathic powers he has another personality that has like pyrokinetic or fire generating powers um, and other m- many other powers and um, that's not represented much in the uh, the show. Some of the other powers show up occasionally, but the focus of the show is that David is a remarkable, remarkably powerful telepath. And so most of what is explored is the implications of a mentally ill, powerful telepath. Uh, and so it engages issues about what 
telepathy is, what it means to communicate directly with people through telepathy, uh, and uh, the, the psychic plane or the astral plane uh, of, uh, on which psychics can uh, kind of meet and, and, and converse. Um, and so the focus is really on that aspect and not necessarily on you know, pyrokinesis or other potential powers that may have been observed in the uh, comic books. But this is just uh, to get you kind of up to speed. It's a TV show about a telepathic uh, uh, superhero uh, with mental health issues. So um, it is, you might guess, very surreal. <laughs> and it is, I think we can draw elements from the television show uh, into our games um, or as inspiration for things that we can introduce in our games. So I want to talk about just a few of the elements of the show that I think would be most useful. Now, the first is the closest thing to a spoiler, and I don't really think it's much of a spoiler given the conversation we've already had and anyone who mm -hmm. watched any of the advertising for the show. And that is the um, show is uh, has elements of what I'd call radical subjectivity. And that is various scenes are from the perspectives of certain characters, and the characters' perspectives influence the, the visual representation of the scene in fundamental ways. So scenes may or may not actually be happening. They may be delusions that characters have. Parts of the scene may be delusional, whereas others might be real at the same time. Um, but again, also entire scenes may have been imagined within the mind of a character. And since we're talking about a mentally ill telepath, this shouldn't be a big shock. Most interesting for our purposes of things we can borrow for the RPG, I think, is the notion that this radical subjectivity would influences the way the world is represented in the TV show. But in a game like Invisible Sun, it's a way to represent the influence of Vizlay on the world around them. That particularly powerful Vizlay, especially in their homes and their neighborhoods, um, would begin to kind of come in alignment with their environments, or rather, I should say, the environments would be pulled into alignment with their personality. And so their home would reflect their, uh, their mood and their tone and their personality uh, in how it is built, in the materials that are used uh, in making that house, in the features and furniture, and kind of the feel of the scene. And drawing, making the physical elements of the scene reflect the personality of the Vizlay who, who uh, runs the house, I think is something that we could do much like how in Legion, various scenes reflect the personality of powerful characters uh, in the narrative. Uh, I think that the uh, the whole neighborhood creation kind of sets you up for that already uh, because it's given to the player like the responsibility to build that house out and uh, figure out how it would be a representation of their character. Yeah, so I think we have mechanisms built into the game that, that will facilitate this. But think about how uh, you can represent mood and personality in the the world itself in the, again, the furniture, the buildings, the architecture. Uh, and that's something I think you can, you can draw inspiration from in, in Legion. And it reinforces uh, a technique that will be particularly helpful to run strong Invisible Sun games. Mm -hmm. The second is a, an element that I think is shared very closely between Legion and uh, Invisible Sun and in that they're both set in what seems to be a setting out of time. It's, Hard to notice this in Legion at first, but it's not clear when the TV show is set. Yeah, it, it looks at first like it's set sometime in the 60s or early 70s. 
but it doesn't really seem to be as the show goes on. Yeah. And (laughs) it's really hard to pin down. Uh, Some of that is because of the sort of pop art uh, feeling of some of the locations. Uh, There's a peculiar disconnect between the sorts of signals we usually see to to uh, uh, tell us when a story is set. Uh, I don't recall a character whipping out a cell phone, for instance. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't recall a person walking up to a flat screen uh, television, a monitor for a computer. Um, And so there's even the technology itself doesn't give you the sorts of signals we rely upon to tell, to be able to say, Oh, well this is happening in the nineties or this is happening in the sixties. But the only, the closest thing we get to an indication is, is based on, you know, art and decoration, which if anything is reminiscent of the old TV show, the prisoner. Uh, I have no doubt that is deliberate. Uh, Incidentally, have have you seen the prisoner? Uh, No, I haven't seen the prisoner. We may need to fix that. You're talking about the, uh, the English version of the prisoner, right? There was an American version of the prisoner. I want to say they did about, I think they did a season of it. Ooh, if, if so, it's, I have so blocked it and, and scabbed over in my brain. I don't remember that at all. Uh, yes, I'm talking about the BBC show by Patrick McGowan. Okay. Uh, that Ken Hyde, I think referred to as the height of the medium of television storytelling. Well, well, and uh, it's, it's very, very good. It is also surreal. Uh, and I think they're referencing some of the pop art, um, notes that come out of the prisoner, uh, as part of, of their aesthetic. Um, you don't have to borrow those, those notes. Uh, but I think that it gives you some indications of how you can disconnect a story from any particular time period, uh, which itself introduces the disquieting influence uh, and feeling that you might want to create with a surreal game. Uh, but also, it is a lot like the art we've seen for Saturine. This art for Saturine is kind of sort of 1920s, maybe a little art deco sort of arts, you know, environments going on with some elements that seem almost fantastic um, or uh, you know, more traditional fantasy uh, ele- uh, time periods, but it's kind of mixed together and, and hard to say when exactly the, the, uh, the art is uh, referencing. And so I think that's deliberate in the same way it is with Legion. Yeah. And one of the sooth deck cards is like a cool sports car. Oh, that's right. Yes. There's a sports car, even though there's like art deco posters for zeros and uh, the, the, uh, the wardrobe of the characters seems to be very sort of early 20th century, like, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, flapper era, uh, 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 and even late Victorian era wardrobes. It's a Mm -hmm. mixture of times and, and that creates this unsettling effect, but I think a pleasantly unsettling effect that just disconnects the the setting from time so that the stories and elements can become timeless in a way. I think that's what Legion's going for, and it's something that uh, the design of Invisible Sun seems to be seeking by not saying this game is or, this game is set in this year or this game is set in contemporary times or anything along those lines. It's trying to create the unsettling disconnect with with uh, a time period. Yeah, so um, we're going to talk about the astral plane and the psychic plane, right? <laughs> Yes, the, the the final element I would recommend pulling straight out of Legion is uh, the 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 way they represent the the psychic or uh, astral plane. So this is 
a, a, a separate plane of reality uh, on which telepaths can communicate either with others or maybe with people they bring onto it. It's not entirely clear how all of that works. Hey, it's surreal. We're never clear about how any of this stuff works. Um, and they do some things in art direction that communicate almost immediately that you're on the psychic plane or you're on the astral plane. One uh, thing that is very effective is that most of the scenes on the astral plane are decorated in a very sparse way. So what you know, most obvious is a scene on the astral plane that takes place in a desert. Mm-hmm. It's hard to get more sparse than that. Uh, and this focuses your attention on a small number of objects. And that's the, the contrast between the sparse environment and uh, usually some sort of, you know, something out of place sitting in the desert uh, or sitting among a sparse environment focuses your attention in a way that is surreal. Um, and again, as we mentioned, I think last episode, you know, surreal literally translated is higher reality. Well, I think they're trying to indicate that the psychic and astral plane is a higher form of reality. So it's accentuated, exaggerated. Uh, but part of the way you accomplish that exaggeration is by pushing all of the foreground into a minimal state so that you're, you're focusing attention on a small number of very deliberate technicolor dramatic uh, components of the environment. Uh, another example is there's a, an astral plane scene in a club. You'd think a club is not a sparse environment like a desert, but the club is very dark. You don't see like outer walls. You don't see a ceiling. You see people dancing and things like that. Uh, so it's crowded, but the environment itself is actually quite sparse and indescript. Mm-hmm. And so it has its own sort of surreal quality because while there's many things, they're not very, there are not many distinct things, nor are there the sorts of anchoring elements that we use to tell us where we are um, or to remind us that we're in the real world. Those things are stripped away um, from this club scene. I think this is something we can do in Invisible Sun to emphasize the surreal aspects of certain environments, to really strip them down, make them minimal, except for the small number of, of elements you want to focus on. I, I, I think this is you know, almost naturally going to happen because of the way we tend to GM with words. Um, and so by doing that, we tend to focus attention on a small number of objects in a particular encounter or setting. Uh, but if you're even more deliberate about it, you can... Uh, avoid painting too vivid and complex an image um, that might distract from the exaggerated uh, singular elements you want to emphasize. So uh, Uh, a club, uh, as you're describing it, or as what happened in the show, I'm, I'm picturing something in the astral plane that is claustrophobic and tight, uh, but, mm -hmm. you know, gives you perhaps a sense of, cover um is that what they were kind of going for there i think the emotional uh impact was supposed to be that you, you don't see walls necessarily so it's not claustrophobic in that way mm-hmm. but it was crowded and there was a lot of movement and everyone was wearing sort of indistinct black clothing um not in a creepy culty way but in a in, in a way that's almost like what you'd expect to see at a dance club but not quite. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, so it did create that sense of a crowd of claustrophobia, but it was claustrophobia because of, of being surrounded by active moving, but somehow still indistinct club 
dancing people mm-hmm. <laughs> um, r- rather than a uh, being enclosed by the architecture. So it was a, a different way to invoke that sense of claustrophobia that was, I think, effective, especially when you're from the perspective, in this case, of a um, telepath who's feeling claustrophobic because he's surrounded by so many voices, yeah. so many other people in his, in the, in his head. Uh, and that's, what's causing the pressure, not a physical pressure caused by a confined architectural space. Um, so I think again, an example of how they're using the environment, even a sparse one to invoke emotion and to trigger certain emotional responses. Uh, and that's, you know, the kind of gold standard we would shoot for, um, it, with our games, hopefully not to the point that people are, you know, triggered in a dis- uncomfortable way, but just enough to give a feeling or a taste, uh, that's hard to get through, uh, raw, uh, na- naturalistic or, um, kind of literalistic description. Mm-hmm. And this uh, goes into another kind of example of, of surrealism um, in the psychic plane is the rules of the plane are entirely different uh, and they're not described in the show. They don't try to even explain how the psychic plane works. Uh, if anything, there's hints that we can't understand how it works because we're not there. So uh, how conflict plays out on the psychic plane is different than you you might expect in say the normal plane in in a show that has involved people you know shooting guns at each other or chasing each other or beating each other up combat on the psychic plane is represented in very different ways in one case um the uh, psychic combat or at least psychic confrontation is represented by a dance battle Because yeah. it's a psychic plane. There's no physical danger. It's all about a competition of ideas and personalities anyway. So how they confront each other isn't so important as the fact that they're confronting each other. So how they choose to do that is just, in this case, a dance battle. I'm going to have to watch that one because that's <laughs> interesting. It is early in season two. I don't consider this a spoiler because I, it's not... It doesn't tell you the context or anything that's happening in the plot. I'll just, there is a dance battle. It's cool. <laughs> and it's very surreal. Um, and it's an example of how you can take things in a very different direction. And as I was watching this, I was thinking of Invisible Sun, like, you know, in a game that has mechanics for traditional combat, it is, Invisible Sun is open to a wide variety of conflicts and confrontations outside of swinging swords and blasting fireballs. And, I had joked in a uh, a playtest session that what we you know what we really needed was Vizlay rap battles, and th- that made a lot of sense to me. Like this is how these creatures of the intellect uh, and creatures of surreal um, uh, magic might confront each other in ways that has very little to do with physical violence. They may instead be having contests of ideas. And so contests of ideas could be dance battles or rap battles or stuffy academic debates or something along those lines rather than, you know, shooting an arrow. Um, And in a game about ideas, that made a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I'm going to have to chew on that one. That's an interesting idea. Um, Yeah, I'm not sure exactly how it would work in the game, but yeah, it's something to think about. Yeah, I don't know how to translate it either, Um, but it was inspiring to me. Cool. 
Well, I think we've talked enough about things we can steal from the TV show Legion. Uh, I encourage people to go uh, watch it if they can. Season one, I don't know where it's available exactly, but it is available. Season two is currently airing on FX or FXX or wherever they, whichever channel they put it on. Uh, you can watch season one on Hulu. Oh, season one is on Hulu. Fantastic. Um, check it out. You'll, I think you'll see a lot of little things that we couldn't just just list off uh, because it is a deliberately surreal television show. With the Visley Tourist Bureau, we're going to be talking a bit about Gen Con because it's coming up again and Invisible Sun is going to be playable at Gen Con this year. You can sign up for actual events where you're going to play Invisible Sun. Um, and this may be a little bit of a surprise because I think during the Kickstarter at some point, uh, Monty Cook had said that this wasn't a game that would work in a con setting. So, hey, here we are. Um, before we start thinking about this, um, hey, Scott, you and I are going to be running Invisible Sun. That is correct. So if you are going to Gen Con and you're interested in signing up for one of the seminars that we're running, um, I'm going to be running games on Thursday at 8 a.m., Friday at 8 a.m., and Friday at 4 p.m. And Scott, when are you running? I'm going to be running games at 8 a.m. Friday morning and noon on Saturday. And the other interesting thing is uh, all of those slots has somebody else running the other uh, tables uh, who has either been on the show or, you know, lives down the street from me. So uh, Danny Neary and Brandon Ording are also running slots during a few of those times. And then Troy Pitchelman is going to be running uh, one of the tables at the Thursday 8 a.m. Uh along with me. Uh, so we'll both be running tables at the same time. So that's, that's super cool. Um, basically, uh, all these people are from the Cyphercast network and they're going to be running invisible sun. And, and anyone who plays in Troy's game should definitely try to figure out how to work in Visley rap battles. Yes. Uh, Troy would love it. Uh, almost <laughs> as much as limericks. Uh, the other thing that's going to be happening at Gen Con this year, there will be two actual play seminars that are going on on Thursday at 4 PM. A woman with hollow eyes is going to have their slot. It's an hour and a half long. Uh, so you'll be able to go in and, uh, you know, watch them put together one little session of a woman with hollow eyes. And that's really cool. Uh, then the Monty Cook Games team is going to be running the Raven Wants What You Have on Friday at 4 p.m. Uh, so there are those two uh, slots. You can watch them actually run through uh, Invisible Sun and see how you know some GMs that have a lot of experience with it are doing it. Uh, because you're going to be seeing Darcy Ross and Monty Cook running those games. Uh, another thing that's coming back this year is the... Uh, character creation process. So on Saturday at 10 a.m., there's a one-hour slot where you can uh, make your Invisible Sun character. And we've talked about that on this show a few times. We've talked to uh, several people who have who have run the seminars. Uh, Scott, you you did this last year, right? I I did along with Danny Neary. <laughs> yeah, and Brandon. Uh, Brandon and uh, Darcy, I believe, ran the other section. Oh, yeah, that's right. You you did it with Danny, and then 
Brandon and Darcy did the other session. I talked to Brandon and Danny uh, while you were on the road uh, about their experience with it. Um, so that was pretty cool. Mm -hmm. um, so you can hop in and do that. Um, so those are the big Invisible Sun things that are happening at Gen Con. So um, what do we think about this game that the designer had initially said wouldn't really work for a one shot? We shall see. Um, I, I think it can work. All right. That's, that's the end of that segment. <laughs> um, however, there are limitations on which parts of the game are likely to be emphasized mm -hmm. in a one shot con setting, which doesn't bother me. Um, but I could see how from a des designer perspective, you might say this, you, they won't see the full feature set. They won't see all the awesome things because they can only see a subset of those things that would work in a four hour time slot. Um, yeah. I think there will be cool things we can do in a four hour time slot. Now I I've talked about this um, with Troy a little bit. He's, he's messed around with, you know, how would you actually run this as a one shot? Um, and I think, you know, from talking about it with him and talking about it with you, we're all kind of on the same page that you're not going to be doing the character generation. Um, if you were going to do neighborhood generation, uh, it would be something that's very brief and you would have to really have uh, GMs who really know what they're doing or at least have a script to walk them through to say, all right, hey, we're going to create a neighborhood and we're going to do a couple of things. And then I'm going to, as a GM, I'm going to take some of those ideas and drop them into this game that we're going to run. And that doesn't seem like something that I would want to uh, put together <laughs> for one of the games that I'm promoting just because who knows how that's going to work once it, once it hits the table. Yeah. They have to design in a way that can be run by anyone that ends up being recruited for and assigned to these time slots. Mm -hmm. So it needs to be robust to a variety of GM styles to say the least. Yeah. And if we're looking for robustness, then I I'm thinking that means you're going to have pre-gens. Uh, and there'll be, well, one of the things that you, you do for the cypher games is you generally get a tier one character. Um, I think mm -hmm. they've done tier two characters here and there, but I've found that once you add that second tier, it just adds a whole lot of extra complexity that doesn't really make the game more interesting to somebody who just wants to see how the game works. Right. And, and it might, by spreading out more uh, information necessary to communicate with the capabilities of characters, uh, reduce the probability that the people who are there for their first exposure to the game actually retain mm -hmm. the basics of the game. Yeah. So I'm thinking, yeah, you're going to get pre-gens. Uh, but what about, uh, what about some of the more complicated orders? Uh, and the, the two orders that come to mind for me would be the makers and the goetics. Uh, makers have that crafting, uh, what do they call it? The maker's matrix. They have, they have a matrix the case, that yeah. they have to walk through in order to craft things. I can't imagine that would be something that's going to hit the con table. No, I, I'm betting there is a maker. Um, if there's yes. pre-gens, assuming that there will be a maker, but that the focus would be on giving that maker some items to begin with mm -hmm. so that they, it's clear that their character is more based on items than other characters, maybe even describing how those items are things that they have made in the past. But I would not expect to teach people how to use the maker's matrix uh, to include elements of collecting 
uh, uh, magical components and then going through the magical creation process all at a table when they are one of, of eight um, players. Uh, eight players? I thought it was six. Maybe it's six. Uh, it seemed like it seemed very intimidating every time I've done it. So maybe it's six. Yeah, I, I think I that just, it's there. There are several tables that are running for a given time slot, um, mm-hmm. but I think it it starts at six. Okay, let's say six. Um, yeah. Then still one of six. One of six players. Uh, <laughs> I don't think they're going to actually work through the whole makers matrix. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, the other one would be the Goetics. Like when they summon a when they summon a, an entity. Uh, be it an angel, a demon, an outer being, or whatever. There's there's a lot of discussion that can go on there, and it usually seems to break out into the Goetic's going to have a little scene where they like the the Goetic and the GM go back and forth and negotiate and role play a bit. And um, I guess that could work, but I don't see that as something you'd want to do often at a convention game. Like it's go ahead. It's going to be a challenge because uh, yeah, at the moment that Goetics start summoning, it takes over the conversation for some period of time mm-hmm. with a group that you have multiple sessions with. Um, you can both learn how to make that less of an intrusion on the rest of the player's time. Um, and you know, less of a, of a, uh, a sink of the, um, spotlight, uh, and the Goetics would kind of know, like, I'm going to get an intense int- uh, uh, attention for a short period of time, and then there'll be a long period of time where I'm not doing a whole lot. It's hard in four hours to, to ration spotlight along those lines. So I think this is going to be a challenge. Uh, hopefully one we have some guidance uh, from Money Cook Games about. Yeah, uh, hopefully we'll get something uh, to go with. Um, do, you, do you have any other thoughts about uh, how we might be running this game at Gen Con? I would not expect if I were signing up for this game to see the full physical presence of uh, the cube. Nah. <laughs> My guess is they're going to be photocopied character sheets uh, and and the like. That being said, I think I'm driving to Gen Con, so I may bring my cube with me. So there might be a Testament of Sons uh, sitting on my table for the time slots that I run. Uh, and if nothing else, we can sort of parry and, and sword fight with our Testaments with other people if they bring theirs. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's that's going to be reliant on the p- particular GMs bringing uh, their sets with them. Uh, and even then, uh, I'm not so selfless that I'm going to hand over Visley kits to everybody and let them fill out their own character sheets and things like that. Uh so you you still won't have the full physical experience of having your own character and all of the little uh, bits and bobs for pool points and the like. So understand that this will be a stripped down presentation, uh, but that doesn't worry me much uh, based on my experience with the playtest. Like I've done this mostly online and that worked. And if it can work online, it can work at a table. Yeah, I'll, uh, I guess depending on, you know, what sort of information we get before uh, the convention, I'll plan on bringing my Testament of Sons and a Sooth deck uh, and probably the board. Just uh, those are the things that seem to have the most impact at the table um, without bringing the entire cube. Yeah, I was trying to figure out how they would do the Sooth deck because also, I, I, you know, they're not giving every GM that runs a table a Sooth deck, I wouldn't imagine. So yeah. my guess is that what they could do is they could pre-script like 15 draws of the Sooth deck and they can give as part of the packet, 
just a black and white copy of those sooth carts for the GMs to lay down or show show to players. That's possible. I, I think they would want to highlight that kind of stuff. Yeah. <sighs> or they may have a sooth deck for every table. Yeah. If they were going to do something, I would say they would probably have a sooth deck that they just give you for the table. Just a loner copy. Yeah. Maybe, but these are all guesses. We're we're just guessing. It's like it's like when we started the show when we were just speculating about everything. Uh, when we started the show, like every episode has, since then has also been just guessing. Yeah, yeah, for the most part. There was that one show in our back catalog where we did talk about all the stuff that's under NDA. So if you go back and look for <laughs> that, um, do you remember which episode that was? Uh, Twenty-one and a half. Twenty-one and a half. I think that was right. <laughs> All right, we'll see you at Gen Con. This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. It is available from Drive Through RPG. Invisible Sun is currently available for pre order at invisiblesunrpg.com. For a limited time, you'll receive an additional sooth deck when you pre-order the game. You can find our blog at incantationspodcast.blogspot.com or email us at incantationspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at Agonseer, A-G-O-N-S-E-E-R, on Twitter. And you can find me at Tex underscore Red on Twitter. Do us a favor. Leave us a rating uh, and a review on iTunes. Uh, it really helps people find out about our show. Another great way is to just uh, tell a friend. Uh, tell a friend about Incantations. Tell them about Invisible Sun. And that would really help us out a lot.